Here we go. What we need to know about God, uh, what we need to, uh, I've lengthened this title because of course I have to have a really long title. So the official title, and I think this is getting more and more fun for me to lengthen these titles so that you can't actually write them down. So what we need to know and experience about God, we learn and experience in Jesus and the Holy Spirit. There we go. Wow. What a concise, wonderful way of thinking about it. The Trinity is really kind of an absurd thing. Um, When you really think through it, talk through it, compare it to other world religions, uh, the whole idea of there being a God and a Son, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit really doesn't make any sense. Uh, no matter how much we try to talk about it and try to make sense of its theology, it really doesn't make sense. Um, and there's no possible way, I don't think, you can address the topic of the Trinity and how that works. When, number one, the Trinity and that concept isn't even mentioned in the Scripture but um, just trying to understand it is difficult. I remember when I was in college, or actually when I was a college minister at Colin, and I happened to just sit down at a table with a girl who, um, I, I was in one of those, like, I need to meet with a lot of people one-on-one during my lunch times and talk about Jesus all the time, because that's the most spiritual thing you can possibly do, is just constantly mention Jesus in a conversation. And so I sat down, and uh, she wasn't a Christian, and I kind of told her, talked a little bit about Jesus. She's like, well, I don't understand the Trinity. Like, how does that work? I remember at the time I had like an immediate answer on my mind. And still, for a year or two after that, I felt very awesome about the thing that I presented to her. And it's been only within the last three or four years I realized that actually makes no sense. That only makes it more confusing. So I was like, yeah, here's how you think about it. It's like, what makes a human, you know? Like, is it the human's brain? Is it their heart? Or is it their body? And I remember thinking like, that is so good like um that is and she was like yeah okay and i'm sure at the time she's just placating me like what's wrong with this guy but as i thought about that you know uh throughout the years i realized just how that doesn't even really make sense it actually only complicates things so like god can't exist apart from the you know it's just confusing right you get the point the point is that it's very confusing and this is reflected in not only how we pray. You know, you've ever had that middle prayer time where you're like, you've, you've been on a trend of praying to God, and then all of a sudden you switch over to Jesus, and you're like, what's happened here? <laughs> Think maybe God's, you know, sort of, he's gone and done something else. Jesus is now paying attention, perked up, he heard his name. It gets really confusing, right? This whole idea of the Trinity is really confusing. So, throughout the ages, there have been all kinds of heresies arising from this confusion. In fact, one of the more popular ones was Marcion's heresies in the Gnostic Gospels, where Marcion just said, listen, I'm reading the Old Testament, this God is a bad dude, or is like an emanation of um, a prehistoric, uh, primeval type God, and Jesus is sort of like the best God of all of them. And so he separated the, the idea between a bad God of the Old Testament and a new God uh, in Jesus. Although we know that's not true, I know a lot of Christians who pretty much live like that in their reading life. They read the New Testament, but don't really pay any attention to the Old Testament because the God of the Old Testament is just a little too scary. So the early G- Greek church fathers fought against this idea quite a bit in their, their teaching. But they went to the other extreme, I think, in a lot of ways, and began picking up Greek ideas about who God is. Now, you read through pretty early on, the Greeks, they, they, they sort of, particularly the, the early philosophers, really didn't enjoy some of the ways that the gods were addressed in these um, you know, epic novels, right? Uh, they just, gods were doing things that were really bad and not so good. And so they learned pretty early on that what you had to do was allegorize all this behavior away. 
Meaning that you could sort of say, well, that, that's sort of like a symbol of some other reality. That's not actually happening. Well, the Greek fathers picked up on this. The early church fathers uh, picked up on this and began doing this with the Old Testament. They began reading the scripture in a way they said was worthy of God, which is really a Greek idea. And so began allegorizing almost all of the things that we see in the Old Testament that come across to us as not so savory or good about who God is. In a few weeks' time, we're going to talk about, is God an angry God? Part one, part two, we'll do it in two parts because, you know, just need to. It's a big topic. And so we'll address some of these passages that they really stumbled over. But that was their way of addressing this Gnostic gospel of Marcion. And, you know, that there's this bad God of the Old Testament and this new uh, uh, you know, God of Jesus. In essence, what they were ultimately doing, at least in my opinion, was almost the same thing. They were ignoring the God as presented to us through the Old Testament by simply overemphasizing uh, what we see in Jesus. Okay? So we have this sort of back and forth. Um, today, we have this same issue. We've got a large movement of people called the Oneness Movement. And if you've been a part of that or know about it, you know, I'm certainly not trying to tell you that you're wrong, but I think I am going to uh, unintentionally. T.D. Jakes of the Potter's House was big into this for a while until evangelicals saved him. Um, from his error. The modalist movement basically just says that, uh, you know, God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus are just sort of modes of the one same God. That Jesus was in, was God while he was here on earth and was in that mode. The Holy Spirit is now God in us. That is his mode. In the Old Testament, he was God and that was his mode, right? Modalism, the idea that he just sort of changes over time. But there's still just one of them. So you got that on the one hand, right? Some of you are thinking, I didn't know this was going to be a theology lesson this time. But I've got to lay at least some groundwork for it. Because many of you believe heretical ideas about God and you don't even know it. Right? So here's now your chance to know it. On the other end, we have Mormonism, uh, which generally tells us that God is in physical form. That Jesus is a supreme creature, a supreme being, high in, you know, this divinity, but that God himself is a physical being. Again, back to the idea of sort of the one major nature of God. What do we do with all this? Um, What we've done is we've often fought against these groups in, you know, with this idea of the Trinity. The Trinity, 100% God, 100% human, that's Jesus. We lost the Holy Spirit somewhere along the way. I'm not for sure. Thankfully, Pentecostals are sort of bringing that back into um, our, our perspective. But we've gotten really, com- we've gotten really, um, I would say, confused in our understanding about who God is, and particularly the relationship that that God has with Jesus. And what's more is we're generally uncomfortable with God. When we hear God's voice in the Old Testament or through the prophets, we really want to quickly turn away from that and move straight on to Jesus of the New Testament. The problem is the Scripture absolutely does not support that way of viewing God. In fact, it runs quite counter to that. I want to read you a few scriptures, okay? Um, first of all is John 1, 1 through 5. And I've got my phone. I've got to bring my Bible up here, so I'm going to have to like, search this and hope that the internet cooperates. So John 1, okay? And the goal of, of these verses, I'm not going to read a lot, but I want you to pay attention to the way that the Bible describes the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. We don't really have time quite to go into the Holy Spirit's role here because that would just be way too much. Um, but we at least want to get this relationship right because I think it's gone awry. Uh, the American Protestants Trinity now, I think, is made up of Jesus, Paul, and the Scripture. 
we've kind of done away with God. <coughs> We're okay with Jesus so long as we interpret Jesus through the Scripture and through uh, Paul. Some would even maybe go so far as to say the Reformers inclu- are included now in our, <coughs> our Trinity, uh, which is basically like being Catholic, you know, three or four hundred years ago. But we won't go there. We'll just say for now we have this really uncomfortableness, I think, with, with God. All right? And so we kind of talk about Jesus instead. But here's what the scripture says about the relationship. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God, whatever that means. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Hebrews 1, it'd be great for you to write these down and and prayerfully to consider these verses this next week as you pursue intentionally an understanding of who is God and what is He doing and why am I comfortable with Jesus but not so comfortable praying directly to God or thinking about God in these vague terms uh, and not really often uh, equating or seeing the proper relationship between God and Jesus. Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And he goes on to explain some other things about the relationship between God and Jesus. I want to turn to John in verse 14. And I want to kind of compare two different ways of viewing God. John 14, this is the sort of famous story of Philip. Philip has an interesting history as a disciple. You know, he's one of the ones that's pretty excitable at the beginning. He goes and finds Nathaniel uh, and gets him excited. And, uh, you know, he's pretty on board at the beginning. Towards the end, he seems to make a not an okay statement, you know. But I think this is the statement that often us, uh, we make after we've spent some time trying to follow Jesus in our lives. Think about this. I really want you to apply this to you because I think we do this with some regularity. When we say things like we don't hear from God or what God is speaking or, um, you know, I haven't really uh, ever heard a word from God. We're doing in part what Philip is doing when he comes to his relationship with Jesus. So here in 14, verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, but believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? That's kind of just a funny aside. He's like, he's like if, if there wasn't any occupancy, would I have told you that you were going to be able to come? You know, it's like, not that sick of a person. Okay. Um, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, which totally seems like he set him up for that. Let's be real. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now Philip's two cents, right? 
He just basically says the same thing, but in a little bit of a more forthright and honest way. All right, Philip says, this is pretty good. Show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. I love the informing Jesus, you know. Uh, Okay, well, I appreciate what you've done so far, but if you could just add this one more thing on top of it, I'm pretty sure that will be good, and we'll be fine, okay? So just do that. Jesus answered, and I can't possibly read this with at least a little bit of a... um, kind of a sigh, you know, like as if Jesus was like, oh, this again, you know, this again. Oh, my goodness. Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority independently. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And I love this line, and I think this is one of the most unrecognized um, passages of Scripture. Uh, look at what Jesus is saying here. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. If you, if you don't believe in me and who I am and my character, at least, meaning at the most immature level, believe in the things that are obvious to you, the evidence of the miracles themselves. You see Jesus constantly downplaying miracles in his ministry. Not that they're not important, not that they're not significant, not that they're not possible. But Jesus was not about forcing people into a belief in him through magic tricks or some overwhelming experience of his presence. He was about people understanding and knowing his character because in knowing Jesus' character, you got to see the very character of God, which was something so radically different and unexpected and and different than any religious person at the time would have possibly imagined it being possible. Okay? goes on to say, Very I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. They will do even greater things. I will do whatever you ask in my name uh, so that the Father may be glorified. You may ask me for anything and I will do it. Okay? Now, so there's Philip saying, just show us a little more than what you've already shown us and that'll be enough. You've got to wonder what exactly was he asking, right? Like, what did he want to see? Like, if God came down, it would just be like Jesus. So, like, what, what did he want? What do we want often when we want to experience God? That's a really good question you ought to ask yourselves. What do you want? What do you expect? Audible voice? Didn't happen very often in the Old Testament. An overwhelming experience? An emotional high? A sense of fulfillment and contentment? What do you want? Moses in Exodus 33 has a different experience of God, I think. So we know a lot about this story, uh, and I was sharing this at our, our worship planning meeting uh, last Sunday, which, for those of you who attended, I'm waiting for your activity. Hello? You think you got off the hook? No. I have all your emails, and I'm waiting for your activity. Um, so, worship planning meeting, coming up with activities. Remember that, all right? I'm waiting. I'm going to start giving you guys, dropping a letter grade each week that you're late. All right? So that's how that's going to work. You're still at an A this next week, but then, down. Um, so we remember the whole pillar of fire and, you know, cloud by day. We got that. That's interesting. That sounds wonderful. And then we remember the back end of the story, which is where God passes by and somehow shows his back. You know, we sing songs about hide me in the cleft of a rock and, you know, be my sweetie and everything like that. But what we don't often pay attention to is the middle part of what happens here and what leads to this experience that Moses has with God. 
Okay, so I want to start reading in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people. Oh, sorry, 33? Exodus 33? Did I not say that? Oops. Oh, I did? Okay, yeah, sorry. You did. People are like, You did! It's your fault, not his! <laughs> Conscientious people in here, you know? It's, okay. You have been telling me, lead these people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you're pleased... Oh, by the way, he's quoting these things, but for all intents and purposes, we don't know where he's quoted this other than, you know, originally at the burning bush, which is kind of a long time ago. Um, And he doesn't even actually say these things. So, I don't know. I think it's really important to, to not assume a lot of times when God is speaking that somehow he's speaking in an audible voice. The prophets who were God's messengers very rarely wrote things in quotes, being from God. They were sensing these things as the Spirit led them around. Uh, in our scientific age, you know, I think we generally want something to be you know, without doubt and completely provable. Sorry, that's not how God works. If he did, we'd probably all be incredibly terrified, like you know, the Israelites at the mountain when God spoke and they were like, whoa, no, 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 we don't want any of that. Let Moses go hear that crazy, scary voice. We'll just stay back, okay? Um, So, he says in verse 13, If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Look at this. He's got this relationship with God. He's talking face-to-face with whatever that means in his, his tent. And his two requests are, one, teach me your ways. Okay? And two, he's praying uh, on behalf of his people. Then the Lord says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then Moses, I don't, (laughs) becomes like (laughs) Philip, okay? Where he decides what he really needs. Okay, that sounded really good and I like that. But what I really need is like a sight of you. If I could just get like a whiff or a sight or something... That would be really, really good. So, here's what he says. If your presence is... Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, I will do the very thing... Wait, wait, let me see. Where am I? Yeah. So, Moses repeats it. Go with us. How will anyone know that we're pleased if you don't go? Distinguish us. I mean, Moses has the sense that the only thing that's going to set his people apart and make it successful is that God is there, that he's active, that he cares. He's got it. And then in 17, I will do the very thing you ask because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. So, then Moses takes it a notch above and says, okay, so then just show me your glory. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on here. I just sort of check out at this point because it's like, really, what is happening? How could anybody possibly explain this in any terms that make any sense in a human way? Okay, so here's the thing. God says, I'll cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. <coughs> what? It almost sounds like a joke. Like, what, what does it mean? How does that, what does that mean? Okay. Um, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. Which is interesting, because if we believe that he's already kind of done that, uh, then he seems to be doing it again, some special occasion. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, compassion on whom I have compassion. That verse is often quoted in the prophets, but not are, you know, isolated in this passage. What does it even mean? But then he says, you can't see my face, for no one may see me and live. Uh, and he goes and tells him about the, the rock and things like that. Well, we're going to unpack this a little bit uh, in, uh, in what we're talking about today. Guys, Jesus shows us the perfect picture of who God is. And this is not some trite, cliche statement that we make so that we all go out and learn as much about Jesus as we can and try to kind of work our way towards being like him. 
Who we see in Jesus is who God really is. And if you don't get that right at the beginning, then the the path is already going to be off for you. Running after Jesus, thinking He's got a great way of living, is really useless. Because I could probably find better ways of living if He's not really God. In fact, I know I can. According to a number of different standards. And going after Him because He's the right, it's the right thing to do because you were raised in church, well, be raised somewhere else where that's not the right thing to do. Our faith rests on the idea that we believe that God is exactly like Jesus and how Jesus presents Himself. And that can't possibly be over-articulated. <clears throat> what we know about this God that is we're uncomfortable with and seems mysterious and seems hard to get along with, it seems in the Old Testament, is telling us Jesus is the perfect representation of my character and who I am. And I think if we're honest, we often love the idea of Jesus, but see Him as sort of this lesser being. God's sort of like the real one. And if we could just get to know who God is like, if He could just come across to us as less mysterious, if we could at least just have better conversations with Him, or understand Him more, then we would be okay. And all the while, Jesus is saying, exact representation of who God is. And, and actually, it's at this point that separates for Christians from Muslims. Or other groups that downplay the divinity of Jesus. (coughs) Or, well, never mind, I'm going too much into that. What we see in Jesus is the perfect picture of God's character. Imagine trying to understand God from just having the law. It was tough. God's purpose in the first place was to reveal Jesus so that we would have a better sense, a relational sense of who he was and what he does. And so that his personality and his character wouldn't be mysterious. But that we would understand him. As someone speaks face to face to another, as we hear here in Moses, we would understand God in that way. That we would be friends of God. And the list goes on and on in the kinds of relationships that's, that, uh, that uh, you know, are described in the scripture. So Jesus shows us the perfect picture of God. I have two points for you, and that's it. Oh, that wasn't well, part of it. That was just a really long introduction. <laughs> Seeing is not believing when it comes to faith. That might seem obvious to you. And yet we see what Moses wants to do, right? He wants to see. Philip wants to see. We want to see. We want some irrefutable proof of God's existence and him working. We want to see. What's so ironic about seeing is, number one, the people who saw God work in the Old Testament often found ways to discount that it was him. The people who spent their time around Jesus seeing him didn't believe him. Obviously, God is not hiding his presence because he doesn't want to make himself known. He knows seeing him isn't going to do it for us. That Jesus himself tells us that blessed are those who haven't seen me and believe. There's something in God's plan in this life that not seeing Him is better for us than seeing Him. And these songs about sitting in His lap and holding Him and, you know, being sweet and all that stuff, I think sometimes exaggerates that that seeing God is somehow going to be the penultimate experience of our world and our lives. That somehow there's something just physical, just 
in who God actually is. Seeing is not believing when it comes to faith. It just isn't. And I certainly don't mean just physical seeing here, but, but sort of having proof that, that, that goes beyond doubts for us. Uh, that's not God's intention here and now for us. There's something much more complex and much more relational about it. That's why in our ability to reason and rationalize, we haven't discovered God. It's because God isn't just something that we sort of like empirically view and then, you know, not to say that there's not aspects of that. Certainly we can make good decisions, but seeing is not in believing. Uh, I, I think obedience leads to believing and experiencing God. We've tried every other route, really. We want worship, we want rituals, we want laws and rules, we want relationships. But when it comes down to it, I think the scriptural testimony uh, is that obedience is the thing that allows us to believe and experience God. In fact, Jesus in John 14, after Philip, basically says, hey, I just show us the Father, that'll be enough, goes into this long spiel where he says, if you obey my commands, God and I will come and make a home with you in the Spirit. And those who don't, won't. God's not saying, okay, follow these list of ten rules and then you get rewarded with my presence. He's saying there's something intrinsic in obedience that opens up a relationship for us with Him. Obedience to God is the thing, I think, that leads us to believing and really experiencing God. And it's also the thing that we try to do our best without, okay? When my brother Grant began... um, uh, looking into the Navy SEALs, and you know he's gone into the Navy, but it looks like it's going to be a while before you can uh, apply to the SEALs. I, I started doing a little research about Navy SEALs, and one of the things I found that was so interesting is you are less likely to meet a real Navy SEAL than you are to meet a professional athlete. I mean, there are so few Navy SEALs. And to one Navy SEAL, there are almost over a thousand imposters. There's a guy that just researches lying Navy SEALs. That's all he does for a career. And he's like supported by this foundation and he exposes all of these people who lie about them being a, a, a Navy SEAL. A, a thousand to one. That's crazy. But guys, that makes plenty of sense, right? It's a lot nicer to say, well, yeah, I'm a Navy SEAL. Uh, than have to actually go through the training required of a Navy SEAL. Like, from what I understand, um, and David probably can, you know, uh, talk about this, Pretty much they drown you until you stop breathing multiple times and then have to resuscitate you. That sounds awesome, right? No, that sounds terrible, like probably the worst thing ever. Like drowning you multiple times. Uh, Yeah, yeah, you got something to share? It's ice cold water. Yeah, oh, okay, forgot about that. Thank you. That gives us a way better picture of that. So you don't just get drowned. You get like frozen drowned, okay? Not a lot of us are lining up to become a Navy SEAL, and I bet a lot of people who think of Navy SEALs because they've watched movies about them and everything else like that, and then they get into training and realize, okay, what? Are they trying to kill me or what? Well, obedience is the thing, I think, that leads us into a relationship with God and an experience with God. Again, it's not that He's holding back. It's that if you really want to understand the character of God, you've got to allow Him to make you like Him. Hello? And you only do that by obeying what He's taught us. Not in some strict obedience as to earn God's favor, but obedience itself is the thing that allows us to experience God's character because He's shaping us to be like Him. 
Obedience is not fun a lot of times. It is not the sexy part of relationship with God, if I can use that adjective. Okay? Worship is, you know, God's doing crazy cool things in our lives, making us grow in ways that we didn't have to have a lot of effort in. All those things are great. But at the end of the day, obedience isn't exactly like, there's no denominations that are really like geared and centered towards just obedience, right? I mean, there's denominations about everything you can imagine. But the idea of just like strictly, you know, like that's the thing. I mean, maybe like, well, no, I don't want to make fun of any denominations. I, I won't do that. Okay. Um, but, but obedience is the thing that leads us to believing in and experiencing God. Okay? It's, guys, it's far simpler to obey a person, Jesus, to, to model our life like Jesus than it is a law book. In some ways, what we have in Jesus is far simpler but far more difficult. And you can have both at the same time, right? It's simple in that I look at Jesus and I say, I'm supposed to be becoming like him. Not 613 laws that say, I'm supposed to like do every one of these without getting thrown outside the city for seven days. But it's far more difficult because how do you truly become like God? It it obviously requires His work in us. Uh, This is why too often I I think what's happening in the church today is the church has so lowered its standards for people, so lowered the idea of following God as to try to keep up and keep track with all the people who are leaving the church. But in doing so, they're making, they're, they're, they're hurting themselves. They're making it so, ob- so easy, so obvious that people are just coming in and nominally saying, I, uh, I follow God, I follow Jesus, without any of the experiences that are actually indicative of experiencing God. And it works against them. It's why as a church, one of the things that our goal is to have high standards for young people. Because it's in those high standards, not that we go around saying, look how awesome and great we are. Who cares about any of that? Hopefully what we're presenting with our lives is, how messed up we are and how wrong we've lived for a long time. But what happens with the high standards is the higher the standard is, the more we expect to experience God's character in our own hearts and our own lives. But as we change and as we grow away from things we're used to, we're learning who God is and the kind of character that He develops inside of us. So it's in obedience that we experience God. And when we cut that short, when we try any other method... We ultimately get sort of a fake, ritualistic, or virtual experience of God. When my experience of God is worship on Sunday mornings and I feel really good in His presence, but I walk away not having really obeyed or embraced any of the ways that I ought to live, I don't experience God. I experience some figment or picture of who He is. Some quick, short burst of excitement and then go on living exactly how I live and experience myself. Or what this culture has to offer. But I'm not ultimately experience who God is. This is why we have the disciplines. This is one of the things that we're going to talk about in our, uh, our Tuesday class on, t- uh, um, yeah, on Tuesday. That's, that's what it is. Uh, it's the spiritual disciplines. How do we equate the disciplines and all the things that seem so complicated to us? Silence and solitude and frugality and all of these other things. With Jesus saying, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That doesn't seem easy or light to do a lot of the things that we're challenged to do and live by Jesus. That, it makes no sense. How could it possibly be light? It seems hard. It seems difficult. But when we view that through the lens that those disciplines are achieving for us an experience of who God is and His character... And we're doing it not so that we can live up to some standard of rightness or because that lifestyle is effective or will impress people. 
But that very lifestyle will it allow us to experience God's grace and goodness. And when we look at Jesus, we have what we need to know about God. And so we can trust God in these things. We're not wondering who He's like and how He's going to work this all out and you know what, what sort of prize is going to happen at the end. We know Him from who He was on this earth in Jesus. And that matters. That makes a big difference. Can you think of a better way to experience Him? <laughs> I challenge you to come up with one. God's designed this. He's designed obedience as a way for us to experience Him. How else would He do it? What's a better way to experience God in a way that's transformative and life-changing than to enable us to become like Him and understand His character in ways that can't be taught, in ways that can't just be simply imitated and followed? I challenge you to come up with a better method. Certainly, Philip at times thought he had one. Just give us a sight. We'll, we'll, be, we'll be there. Give us some word. Give us something we can write down. Give us a calendar quote from the day. <coughs> but this, in God's wisdom, is the way that he's given us to experience and know him. His obedience. Uh, so this is the catch-22 of faith. This is my sort of second point here. It, it, it's, it's, this is the, the rub, the challenge. As I mentioned this in the first sermon about our knowledge of God and our experience of God. That these things, if, if we're not careful, can run off amok and go on their own, Right? Um, obedience without knowledge, guys, is cheap. For those of you who grew up in a you know rough and tumble kind of church where you know you're always proving your faith, right? Obedience was sort of like not a word that meant I'm getting to know God, but it meant a word that I'm doing so that God will like me, and so I can be His friend, <coughs> and so I don't have to go to timeout, and so that my parents will be happy with me, and all the other things that we falsely attribute obedience to. Obedience without knowledge is cheap. If you're obeying a God blindly who you don't understand and don't know, what do you have? You're just a rule follower. You might as well sign on to some other system uh, and just follow that. Why follow this one? Blind obedience is what the Pharisees had, right? And Jesus in John 5, he countered that. He says, you guys know the scripture backwards and forwards and you're in obedience to it and you still don't understand me. Because your obedience isn't based in relationship with me. It's based on rules. Most of which you've just sort of added to and come up with to suit yourselves. So you don't have to take care of your sick mom. You can just donate that money to church, which circles its way back into your pocket. Wow, that's a smart one. So you can tithe your dill and cumin and whatever and not have any justice for anyone. But we do the same thing in our own, our own ways. We have our own little rules and our own uh, ways of obeying. That have nothing to do with understanding God's character. But everything to do with feeling good about who we are. We're playing religion. We're just playing the role. And we've got to be careful because it's cheap. It's just cheap. Obedience without knowledge. And of course, knowledge without obedience. We know that one. I think that one for many of us makes sense. It's those of us who've been in church a little bit longer. And we've gotten into this default pattern of obedience. That's almost like, well, I'm just going to do it because it's the right thing. Really? That's why you're a Christian? Because it's the right thing? You're not a Christian because you're, you believe God is great, great character and good and you want to do everything you can to be like Him? Well, you're a Christian for the wrong reason. Christianity has nothing to do with being right and it has nothing to do with an effective way of, of a lifestyle. It's a very ineffective way, I think, yeah, arguably according to some of our cultural principles. So you've got to get to know Jesus. Not American Jesus, but Jewish Jesus. 
Hebrew Jewish Jesus, not American Christian uh, pretty Jesus. For those of you new Christians in particular, you've got to get to know Jesus. Because in getting to know Jesus, you will understand who God is. You don't need to get to know Paul. You don't need to get to know the Scripture per se, although that's certainly how you learn about Jesus. Although you, I think you learn about Jesus from being around people who are like Him, too. You've got to get to know Jesus. Because the more you know Jesus, the more you know God. You know what He's like. You know what to expect. It's why we focus so much on Jesus as the core of our ministry. Not because we're obsessed theologically with Jesus. Because we truly believe that's God showing us who He is and what He's like. And that's amazing because you don't normally get much about God um, in terms of, uh, in, in most of the world religions, in terms of uh, a lot of description. Particularly not the kind of relational description we get. But older Christians... And this is probably one of the ones that I would, I would encourage you to write down and think through. Some of you got to reflect on why you live like you do. You've gotten into default mode. You just live like you do as a result of it's just what I've been doing. You obey not out of a sense of, well, I'm learning about God's character and I'm growing closer to Him, but I'm obeying because it's just sort of what I've done. I'm comfortable with it. People expect it of me. And this is the one I think is far more dangerous in some ways. Why do you live like you do? Are the choices you make in your life about understanding the character of God, or are they about some other thing? Because if they're about any other thing, they're falling short of their purpose. And that's nothing to shame you. You don't need to be shamed. It's something that should excite you. Because if in recognizing how you're living is going to grow you closer to God and experience who He is, well, then that's just good news. Because here you've passed up a number of opportunities to just sit and introspect and reflect on, oh, I'm doing this, I forgot, because this is who God is. Duh. I'm not doing it because I expect it of me or because someone just, you know, I had to. I mean, yeah, you can do that and your reward is there. Your reward is in the doing it. Good for you. You can feel good about yourself for a few hours. But it would be far better if you used it as an opportunity to really experience who God is and His character. We need to see worship and prayer through a new lens. Guys, uh, you know, we need to embrace the truth that God really does delight in working in our affairs. Not like a child who plays with little toys, delights in moving his toys around. But he's a God that delights in working in our affairs, both small and in big. That's just who he is. That's who Jesus was. Jesus didn't go from one big thing to the next, trying to impress everyone. He worked in the lives of a few individual people. He was concerned about the world's affairs. From the biggest picture down to the smallest decisions that people were making in their lives. That is really good news about God. Now you might not believe that, but if you don't, it's because you don't understand that Jesus shows us who God is. You have Jesus in your mind as, okay, he's interested in world affairs. I wonder what God's doing. He's probably not near as interested. You missed it. You're a heretic. It's okay. Get over it. You know, just work through it. Right? But he does. He, he delights in our world affairs. This is why I think this idea of worship, and I've heard it said before a couple of times, and I, I kind of understand it. I don't know. I think it could lead to some really good conversations. But this idea that when we come together and worship, we need to sort of drown out everything else that's going on in our lives. 
I think the intention of that statement is that we put things in our life in perspective of that God's working. But there's also a danger in anything that we say that somehow this experience of worship is this virtual experience where nothing that's actually going on in our life matters and we ought to just come together and all kind of pretend that uh, things are going okay and good and just worship God in our song as if that's how it works. But God works in our daily affairs. That's why, guys, if your major experience of worship is on Sunday morning, you're an immature Christian. I might be a, a strong statement, and maybe I shouldn't say you're an immature Christian overall. Maybe I should just say you're immature in your understanding of worship. If your idea of worship is primarily aimed at what we do here in singing, you are not a very mature Christian. If you can't find ways to worship God throughout your life, it's okay. You're going to learn. This is just open up that possibility and understanding. Most of what we do here is virtual in my mind. And by virtual, I don't mean it's unimportant. I mean it's more like, how could I possibly explain this? Uh, a taste, right? Like a taste. It's like watching house hunters and kind of getting a taste for what it's like to house hunt without the commitment behind house hunting. All right? <laughs> or a taste of what it's like to be a ch- I told this story to my class this last week. I don't normally do this. In fact, I make fun of people who do it, but I did it. A couple years ago, my dad and I were watching a show on Discovery Channel where these people... Uh, had the, they were like chainsaw carvers, and they carved giant pieces of wood from chainsaws. I immediately went out and bought a chainsaw, got a piece of wood, and tried to make an owl. And now my wife and I have this ongoing joke, because I went from the big owl to now a small owl, and I couldn't even make it with a knife, much less a chainsaw. Somehow, in my mind, this translated into my skills. No, no, no. If your experience of God is primarily related to what you do in a service like this, you have missed so much of who He is. That's good. Because there's so much more to learn and grow in. Okay? So much more to learn and grow in. Um, I was thinking about it kind of like this. And this is, I try to come up with analogies. Some of my analogies, as you know, are so stupid. But I was thinking about like a, a guy that was a medic at a hospital, right? And he's got this like illness. And he like just needs to get it fixed, Okay? But like he doesn't ever talk about it or try to get it fixed when he's at the hospital. He's a medic. Okay? He's not, maybe not like a paramedic, but like med, med tech or something like that. I don't know. At a hospital, right? Thanks. So, but for some odd reason, when he goes home at the dinner table, and none of his parents are doctors or whatever else, every now and again he'll mention his illness. I just, maybe he's a little bit bored and he'll kind of mention, oh, I really got to get this illness fixed. Or, you know, maybe, you know, he's kind of got his emotional moment, a moment of weakness, and he mentions that he's got an illness that's got to be fixed. I think this is how a lot of us live when it comes to uh, obedience. Is when, when moments are sort of like right, and when we feel like, oh, maybe I'm bored, I'll share something, or I'm emotionally, you know. But we don't often allow ourselves to be fixed in those environments that, that, that where we need to go. We don't go to the hospital. We don't go back to God for these, these things. We primarily, you know, when the most important time of worship during the week is when we have a tough decision to make and we have no idea what to do and where to go or we're feeling incredibly down and depressed. We don't think of worship in those moments often. We think of worship on Sunday mornings when maybe it's, that's not exactly the time that, uh, you know, God has most opened up our minds and our hearts to being fixed by Him. So I, I just think we've got to kind of open up our understanding of this. We've got to go beyond this kind of ritualistic and virtual form of worship that's mostly about appearance and about how we appear to other people. 
uh, without really paying attention to its essence. So let me give you a few practical instructions for this. Uh, and I, I just give, I just have one. That's really actually all I have. I, just, I don't have multiple ones. Um, recognize a hard choice or transition that you have in your life upcoming. This is a hard choice. Some transition you're making. Um, it could be something that you're just going through right now. It's incredibly difficult. Uh, yeah. Step two. I know this is going to be really surprising for everybody. Spend some really concerted time, okay? And really searching for God's direction in that. Classic <coughs> concerted. That's right. Kind of a French. Stop correcting me in my correcting row back there. I'm glad you guys are sitting in the back. Um, whether it's reading scripture, whether it's talking to people, whatever that, that looks like for you, search for God's direction this week in that situation. And I don't mean just talk about it whenever you're bored or talk about it whenever the moment is convenient. I mean spend time searching for God's direction in it. Whether that's in prayer or whether it's in really intentionally seeking someone out. To talk through it and figure it out. Not just as a way for them to feel bad about, you know, feel sorry for you, whereas they're not expecting, you know, God's direction in it. If you're not willing to hear from someone else on it, then you're probably not willing to seek God's direction. And here's the thing that gets a little bit different, because I think we do those decently well, those first two. But according to the model that Moses gave us, and I don't necessarily think it has to be a hard and fast model that we all pay attention to all the time, is you need to make a trust commitment to God. Or ask for help making one. And by trust commitment, I mean you respond. Whether you get direction or not, you're going to respond. Before God had even spoken, what was Moses' state? If you don't go with me, I'm not going. And Moses had already made the mistake earlier when he was frustrated at the people to bypass God. So he could have easily done it again. Said, okay, fine, the people are frustrated, they're whatever, I'm just going to head on out and let's see what happens. But he did. He made it very clear, God, I'm not going if you're not going with us. Because if you don't go with us, I know how this will play out. I've seen it already before. He makes a trust commitment. A commitment to God in trust to do some behavior, some action, some waiting, whatever that is. And sometimes it's waiting, sometimes it's not. I don't know. For you, it may be different. But we make a trust commitment, or at least ask for God for help. If there's not, if we're at the point in our relationship with God where, you know, we don't have the ability to really say, God, I can trust you in this. God, help me trust you in this. That's honest. Because the thing with obedience is the more you do it, the more you can look back at times in your life and say, I obeyed God there, and look how that turned out. It's just a memory thing. The more you do it, the more and more, more naturally you can actually pay attention to these things. And then, of course, number four is obey. Just do it. If God gave you direction, just go and do it. In John chapter 7, one of my favorite verses, because it just seems so unspiritual and irreligious. <laughs> Jesus, when he's around all of these uh, you know, smart Pharisees, and they're wondering, why is it that he's so spiritual and he didn't go to any of our schools? Jesus' response to him was just, eh, just try it out. Try it out and see if what I'm saying is true. Those who try it out will know ultimately whether my truth is truth. If not, whatever. Just try it out. <laughs> this is not spiritual. It just sounds so like, yeah, just anything really in life. Just go do it and we'll see what happens. Um, and he gave him that claim. And I think that's very much what obedience is with us. Is when we try out the, the you know, um, 
God's way of living, we we become like Jesus. Uh, He's telling us and he's going to show us in those things the relationship that he has with us. We're going to take communion. And uh, the way we take communion is a little bit different around here. We're a little ruckus. And the idea is not to offend anybody uh, or to make light of this moment. But, you know, even though we're not eating a lot of food, although uh, Grant, thankfully, has been doing bread, which is pretty great. And I love it. I don't know if we've become incredibly spoiled because I can never go back to the crafter again. Um, I don't know what I would do. I just, it wouldn't be the same. And so, um, yeah, we just take this as a love offering um, uh, for just remembrance of of what God has done for us, but also just as an opportunity to really love each other equally uh, and spend time with people and talk with people and, and treat them right. So if you're new, you take one of the pieces of bread, we dip it into the juice. If you're a Christian and, and you're a follower of... Uh, uh, Christ, and you're welcome to, to join him uh, with that, that meal for us. Lord God, thank you for um, just the way that you lead and guide us. You care about our life here and now. You give us instructions on how to live and how to think. I just pray that we would have a better sense of your character and of who you are. That we, those of us who've been living um, in your kingdom for a while now, would not take for granted those ways of life you've taught us. That we would see in those choices a reflection of how good you are in your very character. That we would get out of the routine and rote nature um, that rule following can easily get us into. And for those of us who are new to faith or struggling with faith, now I just ask that you would reveal yourself. That you would view opportunities for <coughs> obedience God, so that you can prove yourself true. We love you Lord and we thank you for just who you are and and what you do in the world around us. What else can we say other than that, Lord? Pray that this time that we remember the sacrifice you made for us, uh, we remember um, that it's at the core of your heart and your mind for us that you would do something um, so devastating and so challenging um, just in hopes of, uh, of having a relationship with us. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.